Welcome to Ojai Cast, where we pull back the curtain to explore all things music to satisfy musical appetites. All are welcome here, from newcomers to longtime music fans. On each episode, special guests help shine light on topics ranging from concert repertoire, music of today, to their very own Ojai experiences. I'm Thomas Kotcheff, a composer and pianist, and you may know me in the Ojai family as the on-air host of the Ojai Music Festival livestream. You're listening to our second episode, where we're talking about our 2021 music director, John Adams. I'm personally a huge fan of John Adams, and I'm really excited to have some stellar guests to chat about him today. We'll have Vicky Ray and Joanne Pierce-Martin, two world-class pianists who have premiered and performed so much of John Adams' music, as well as composer Dilly Mattingly and the chairman emeritus of Nonesuch Records, Bob Hurwitz. Before we get to our guests today, I want to remind you that this year's Ojai Festival takes place September 16th through 19th, and you can visit ojaifestival.org for more information, and you can and should follow the Ojai Festival on social media at Ojai Festivals. to John Adams' Hallelujah Junction for two pianos, a piece that will be performed at this year's Ojai Music Festival by two of my all-time favorite pianists, Vicky Ray and Joanne Pierce-Martin. Vicky is a founding core artist of Pianospheres and the head of keyboard studies at Cal Arts, and Joanne Pierce-Martin is the keyboardist of the LA Phil. Between the two of them, they have championed the music of basically every single living composer, including the music of our 2021 music director, John Adams. So thrilled to welcome Vicky and Joanne to the Ojai cast. Thank you. Thank nice you. to be here. So today you're talking about um, John Adams, our music director for this year. Now, both of you have collaborated with John many times, both as a conductor and as a composer. Can we start today by talking about him as a composer, his musical voice and his style? What about it appeals to you? For me, it's this combination of um, a beautiful sense of lyricism that's coupled with this exuberant embrace of rhythm in a, in a really uh, American, even particularly California kind of way. Um, so it's his way of weaving together those elements um, that I really love. How about you, Joe? Absolutely. Yeah, those are two of the first things that come to mind, uh, particularly the rhythm for me, just... Um, I, you know, I have an older brother who's a drummer, and I've been a metronome geek my whole life, and just the, the whole the whole idea of a great groove, um, and like Vicky says, mixed with this incredible beauty, it's uh, it's one of the great things about enjoying John's music. You kind of lo- lose yourself in that groove, and then still get to sing a beautiful line. Do you think that groove has been there? I mean, you guys have played his music for the last forty years, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, we started when we were five. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> um, and I'm wondering, uh, has that group been there for all the whole time for you, or is that, has it changed over the course of his, his career? I, 
I, I think it's it's always been there. I mean, my, the first piece I remember hearing of John's was Shaker Loops, and that definitely has a groove. But but it does seem like it's it's changed and morphed over time. Like um, this summer, Joanne and I had the pleasure of revisiting grand pianola music, which John wrote in '82, and um, and the difference rhythmically between our piano parts in that and how they interact in Hallelujah Junction, which is what '96, so you know, 14 years later is that worlds apart, you know, Hallelujah Junction is much more complex. The Hockadine is crazy. Um, Grand Pianola has some of that, but it's much more straightforward. Yeah, absolutely. The way we're diving into Hallelujah Junction right now is, is um, it's really a wonderful exercise for, for the brain and um, the heart as well. But as far as the grooving, the Hockadine, as Vicky mentioned, uh, it's very complex and we're really getting into the nitty-gritty, working together. And it's sort of the ultimate in um, finding your own groove and then trusting your partner's groove and enjoying and uh, filling in each other's holes and um, really kind of uh, approaching it as one, as one. Almost four hands on, on, on one person. Right. Definitely, like a meta instrument. I mean, that piece um, is one of my all-time favorites. It, I think at this point it is part of like the two piano canon definitely um everyone tra plays this piece and it's because it's so awesome yeah. um what does the title mean it has to do with a particular um a highway junction in, Cal I, in california yeah. do you it's know near, where it is? it's very near the nevada border um kind of yeah Actually, we had a little, I had this crazy idea, and because we got busy, thank goodness, we weren't able to do it. But I thought about maybe flying to the area and taking some aerial pictures, like somehow with the two of us in a little plane. But um, Because Joanne's a pilot. You're a pilot? <laughs> but, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. In my spare time. <laughs> no, just for myself and not really, you know, not commercially or anything. But uh, it would be a really fun thing. But uh, funny, uh, Vicky texted me a, an aerial picture of the junction just the other day, and we were both kind of laughing at, at really how quite simple it is. If you look it up on Google Maps or Google Earth, um, there's nothing much to it. But Yeah, it looks pretty uh, out in the middle of nowhere. But there is that photo of John out in front of the little market there that you can find on the internet oh, somewhere. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's kind of cool that that piece has that connection to Grand Piola music. Like, they, they have, like, travel and freeways and, right? Because that's what that's about, too, right? Yeah, so oh, much yeah. of John's music and, is about. And, and road movies. Road, road movies, which yeah. is just for violin and piano. Same kind of idea. Yeah, and, and so much, like, again, the California thing, the whole, a guy who, you know, spent a large part of his life out in the West traveling and doing road trips, and all three of those pieces evoke that. <laughs> um, amazing. Okay, so we can now talk about um, John Adams as a conductor. You guys have both played Beneath His Baton many, many times. Yes. Yes. Um, LA Philly Music Group all the Absolutely. time. Um how is he as a conductor? So much fun, so energetic. In fact, we did a special birthday concert for John playing um, on the Green Umbrella series at, at Disney Hall. We did um, Grand Pianola music under his baton. And yeah. It was a most exciting evening. <laughs> we were, everybody was hyped up. And, yeah, um, it was we, such a rush. We just had a blast. I mean, at the end, the, the excitement at the end of that piece, it's just, um, and John, you know, it's exciting to experience a, a composer's music with, with him on the podium, him or her. And um, it was just, uh, he's very joyful. I think when, when he hears his music, um, 
Yeah, you I, know he's having as much fun as you are. He is, right. yeah. yeah. Maybe, maybe more, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> it reminds me of a, a dear friend of mine, a painter who's no longer with us, but he used to say this, uh, sometimes he would look at his own works and, and he would say, did I create that? Or I can't even believe that's mine. And I, I often think, Vicki, you're a composer. I, I am not. But it must be such a great joy for a composer to hear their works come to life. Yeah, absolutely. And it, I mean, Thomas can certainly speak to that. And Thomas but as yeah, well. It, it's, yeah, it's an incredible feeling. And I, I, I'm still too new at it to speak with any kind of authority. Oh. <laughs> but I definitely feel like with John that um, that he's, he's just having so much fun. And one of the ways that that manifests when you're playing uh, under his baton that I love is, you know, when when you're waiting for an entrance, um, the, com the conductor will glance up at you, you know, and kind of give you a little cue or, you know, and whenever, whenever John, um, you know, is going to cue you and he looks up at you and, with, and he sort of invites you in with this look of complete kind of ebullience, you know, and like, like, hey, like, jump in the pool, come on in, the water's great, you know, he just looks, <laughs> and he makes you want to play, he really, oh, yeah, yeah, it's just a, it's a, it, it's not scary, he doesn't make it scary, he makes it fun. Absolutely, yeah. that's, that's so perfect. Yeah. Do you think his perspective as um, a conductor or a leader is different because of his composing background and, you know, and his familiarity with, with the, the language of, of new music? Yeah, maybe, but I also think just it's inherently who he is, you know. And I think when you read, like reading his, his autobiography, um, Hallelujah Junction, that you get the sense that, that there has been this sort of bubbling spirit from the get-go. Plus, you know, the influence of jazz and pop music has is, yeah. is permeated his life, and he, and he embraces that. Absolutely. I, I was reading the book as well um, just this year and I earmarked so many pages because they resonated with me as far as you know Biggie you and I are also similar that we we're not just classical music nerds quote unquote we enjoy many different genres of music and and a lot of the things that John lists you know the, the early rock and roll and the jazz and I, so much of it just resonates with me and, and just you know hearing a I think or seeing West Side Story the movie for the first time I think he mentions and um, just being blown away by the score and at the LA Phil we got to play the movie you know live and uh, played every note of that and and I just remember it was bowling me over just every little piece of every note every phrase every motif and it's um you know this made a huge impression on him too and it just made me smile reading that and and one of the great things about sean's music is that we get to trot out and you know use all these different parts of our musical selves that we don't always get to use you know our rock groove side you know at, you yeah you don't always get to do that i mean different musics obviously evoke different sides of your musical personality but uh John's music really gives permission for, for a lot of my facets to come out. Absolutely. <laughs> I love that. I'm wondering if either of you or both of you have any fun John Adams stories you'd be willing to share on the podcast. When we did um, the premiere of Road Movies, um, the third movement was much different. It was quite a bit longer. And... Um, after the premiere, we were at the party, kind of talking, and I cannot believe that I was cheeky enough to say this, but somehow we got to talking about the third movement, and I said, well, it seems kind of long. 
<laughs> and he cut it. He trimmed it. He trimmed it quite substantially, and I was blown away. But he asked, and I said it, and he listened, and it was just, I was just really um, bowled over by that. Wow. Yeah. That's impressive. Yeah. I did not know that. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. It'd be actually cool if we actually played an excerpt of Road Movies, just so the audience had a chance to hear this really, really cool piece, which you premiered. That's, inc that's incredible. So let's play an excerpt of that right now. personal level and I feel like he's fun all the time he's naturally fun you know it's it's difficult to kind of whittle anything down um I, the very first time I met him actually up close um was when I first started it was only about 20 years ago um when I first started with the LA Phil and he, he was at a rehearsal and um actually when I had auditioned for the job we had to do an excerpt from Naive and Sentimental Music on um, synthesizer, and um, <laughs> it's always fun to to work with the synthesizers that he includes in a lot of his music. And I know he scratches his head and kind of feels, I don't know, he has second thoughts about including it sometimes. But at the same time, that's a huge part, of course, of who he is. And um, but it was funny because he, uh, it, it it was memorable because we had a rehearsal and then he came up to me and introduced himself. And the first thing he said was something like, your rhythm, your rhythm is incredible or some kind of beautiful compliment. And this, this doesn't happen very often, you know? <laughs> and it was, it was just so sweet and heartfelt. And of course I was just uh, really flattered. I was flattered, but I had been working really hard on the piece and, you know, kind of working with metronome a lot and, and his music sometimes um, is really fun to practice because of the groove. And sometimes I have to cut myself off from, <laughs> from practicing it at times because, you know, I know I have to go on to something else, but it's just so much fun to practice. And anyway, so he made a really just lovely first impression on me, and, and that's something that, that I carry with me. I think, I think if you asked musicians pretty much all over the world about John Adams, everyone would say, he's such a nice guy. Yeah. He's a, such a genuinely nice person. Yeah. Makes you feel good about playing his music yeah. and, and working with him. It's just wonderful. Yeah. Uh, one of the kind of themes for this year, and this is part of John Adams' vision for this festival, is to not be looking backwards, but looking forwards. And so a lot of it features younger composers, the next generation. 
And uh, John Adams has his role, the LA Phil, as the creative chair of the LA Phil, and he is a big advocate for young composers. Can you guys maybe reflect upon that and 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 that part of Ad- of John Adams's life? Well, I I definitely noticed a change in the, the new music programming when John took over, and um, and I. Their previous um, creative chair, Stephen Stuckey, was a dear friend, and I loved his program programming. But I did feel, in some ways, it was more Eurocentric. And so when John came in, um, it it definitely started to take on more of an American hue. Um, and I remember sitting next to him at a noon to midnight. Uh, I guess the last one we had before the pandemic, and he was talking about really fringy new music happening all over the U.S. And, and really young groups and very experimental stuff. And he was so up on stuff that I, I was pretty blown away. And, um, you know, it would be easy for someone of his stature to just sit back and nobody knows. But he's genuinely hungry and interested and passionate about seeing what happens next. What are you two looking forward to most about this year's festival? It could be a piece you're playing. It could also just be something in Ojai or the, something at the festival itself. What are you looking forward to? Be having a lovely live audience in Ojai again and people who get to sit there and we can feel their energy and, and feed off it and have them enjoying live music again in that beautiful place. It's just, can't wait. And to reconnect with colleagues, you know, it's so... Every time I actually get to see somebody um, from our new music village, it just feels so joyful. Um, and you remember, like, you know, I love these people. These are my, this is my tribe. <laughs> you know, we've been so far apart for so long, and uh, yes. so I'm looking forward to the reunion. Well, thank you both so much for coming on to the Ojai Cast, and we'll see you at the festival in like three weeks. Yes. Yeah. All right. Exciting. Woo-hoo. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Thomas. Listeners will not want to miss the LA Phil New Music Group at the Ojai Festival on Sunday, September 19th, where Vicky and Joanne will perform John Adams's Hallelujah Junction and the world premiere of Dylan Mattingly's Sunt Lacrimae Rerum, These Are the Tears of Things. listening to Dylan Mattingly's Magnolia for Piano Four Hands, which will be performed on the opening concert at the 2021 Ojai Music Festival. It's my pleasure now to welcome Dylan Mattingly to the Ojai cast via Zoom. I've been following Dylan's music for such a long time now. His music includes some incredible explorations of microtonally tuned keyboards, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Welcome Dylan to the Ojai cast. Thanks so much. Great to, great to be talking to you. All right, so we're just, we just heard Magnolia. Can you tell us about this piece? Sure. Yeah, it's um, uh, this piece is actually 
it's related to the opera that I've been working on for the last nine years, um, and which is a, a massive thing called Stranger Love, six hours long, this um, huge ecstatic piece. But so, so Stranger Love is this huge thing, and uh, it's about love and the seasons and the expansion of the universe, and it, it covers uh, a vast amount of space and ecstatic energy. And a lot of the pieces is, um, is extremely forcefully ecstatic and one of the things i always say about the the first act particularly of stranger love is that it takes these little moments that are recognizable in our lives and blows them up into kind of entire worlds that you can walk into and you can walk around and you can see you know the the feeling of looking up into this sky uh, at sky writing in this in the sky it, it, you can enter into that and kind of live there, look around and see what a world made entirely of that moment of existence would be like. So Magnolia, uh, I wrote concurrently. One of the things about working on something for nine years is that you have a lot of ideas that might uh, concurrently arise. So um, this piece, it it stems from material that I was working on in the, the summer of Act One. The uh, Stranger Love is separated into the seasons. And um it's that moment it, it's one of these moments and as i said so much of the piece is totally ecstatic but it's often ex ecstasy pointed in different directions the kind of like the fullest emotional uh vision of a lot of different ways of being uh some of which are you know absolute joy but some of which like the moment of magnolia is this kind of extreme serenity um that like a moment of summer night um with without anxiety something that um could be hard to come by in fact but uh like a moment where things aren't moving very fast and perhaps you're just lying there um you know listening to like rustling of leaves outside a dark window uh it takes that that moment and it gives you the maximalist experience of, of what that can be so that's my imagination for magnolia i love it so uh, the piece is for piano four hands, and um, which means two pianists at one piano sitting side by side. Um, how did you navigate that physicality? Yeah, I mean it's um, it's actually particularly interesting because I think that um, or. I think it's particularly interesting. Uh, I think that often piano forehands music is specifically geared towards like, ah, oh, they're moving across the piano. Like there's a lot happening. Uh, you know, the, the frenetic kinetic energy that can uh, come out of two people sitting on one thing that's theoretically designed for only a single person. Um, and Magnolia is extremely still. So that, that energy is like, uh, it's like in slow motion. So you get, you do actually get moments of them, of them crossing over each other, but it's like this, like, extremely slow dance where they're um just like every note is like a little star that's that's appearing that um they're controlling with these uh intertwined fingers great so today we're talking about our festival director uh john adams music director john adams um can you talk about your relationship with john yeah um so i've known john since i was I, I want to say 15 years old, and um, I met him when I was uh, co-director of a uh, an ensemble called formerly known as Classical um, that existed in the Bay Area when I was growing up, uh, and the, the premise of the ensemble was that it was teenagers playing music that had been written in their lifetimes. And um, I mean, one of the one of the main purposes of this ensemble, which is something that I've also carried with me into the rest of my life, is was just that there was lots of music that uh, we all 
liked to listen to and we loved and we were really excited about and we never got to play. Um, so, you know, I grew up in uh, going uh, playing in youth orchestras, uh, also playing in school orchestras, all sorts of, uh, uh, you know, classical music experience for, for kids along with non-classical music experiments and bands, etc. But there was there was music like John Adams music um, and uh, you know, I could I can name all my other favorite composers from age fourteen, but John was certainly one of them. Um, and I just wanted to play that music. You know, you go to youth orchestra and it's lots of fun, but you're not you're rarely playing music by John Adams. And like you know, I listened to John's Book of Legend Dances string quartet, and I was a cellist. I'm like, I want to play this. Can I just play this? <laughs> and so, formerly known as classical, was something where it was like, okay, great. Why don't, why don't we just all just like try and play all these things that. <laughs> that we've been listening to so that was the idea and the the other part of it is we also played music that was written by people within the uh, within the ensemble and so we had a show when i think i was about 15 and it was in san francisco and um there was a piece of mine that uh, i was playing and john came uh i don't know exactly how he how he found out about it but someone you know someone someone knew john and john came to this show and and he heard this piece of mine for cello and piano that I was playing at age 15. He came up to me in the aisle after the show. And, you know, mind you, he, he was one of my favorite composers. And certainly at age 15, like, you also, you like barely believe that like composers are real humans. It's like, you know, these like kind of like uh, godlike, uh, these deities that come out of the stars <laughs> and bestow the Dharma of Big Sur upon the world. Um, and so John came up to me and like punched me in the shoulder and said, hey, we should hang out. <laughs> <laughs> and that was how I met John. And, um, you know, over the course of my life since then, I've, I've spent a lot of time sharing music with John, talking about music with John, um, and eventually talking about many, many things beyond music. And we've, we've become friends uh, over that time. But um, the relationship started with um, me just taking my music to, um, to him and him giving extremely thoughtful response to my music in a way that a way that I had never really experienced before not that I hadn't had good teachers and I, I would have great teachers um, following John but John the thing that always separated those experiences with John was that he took the music so seriously um, and I, like you know I don't know exactly how in words to convey the meaning of that but um I, you know m I had many great teachers who would take me seriously um, and you know as a 15 year old old uh, at the time, you know, it would be, yes, like, absolutely, the, you know, I'm here to help you on your career, you want to be a composer, great, like, let's talk about how to do that, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. But John would look at my music, like, not in that context, he would look at my music in the context of music, <laughs> like all music forever. And there would be the sense of like, yes, like, if you're a composer, you're writing music and you're entering into this like vast, complex world where anything is possible and many things have already happened and it's both exciting and responsibility and like your music matters. And that was something that I, I think to that degree I'd never really experienced and it was extremely inspiring, especially for me at that age. Like I, that's what I really want. I really, I wanted to create music that that existed in the world that was super meaningful to people and i still do and to have someone look at my music with that regard um and and not just like um you know oh yes a, a 15 year old like sure yeah uh, go ahead let's see what you got um it was really amazing and um and uh, you know that's that's never dwindled john really looks at music 
as something that's extremely important. And I think that's something that's really valuable and inspiring as a, as a composer to feel like what you do could really, really matter. That's incredible to know that he, that you met him when you were 15, because I feel like the first um, kind of uh, piece of yours that I heard that John Adams either commissioned or helped commission when you were 23, is that correct? The LA Phil Commission, is that That sounds right, yeah. probably. Yeah. I feel <laughs> like it's about 23, and it's crazy that at that point you already had an eight-year relationship with John at the age of 23. That's amazing. So yeah. um, uh, these... Uh, fireside chats with John about music. How would you describe his musical taste? <laughs> um, that's a that's an excellent question. I mean, um, his musical taste is is vast, and you know what I think was really always interesting is that like he would always it would always point me in directions that I'd never considered. Uh, not like not like Dylan write this music and go in this direction that you never considered, uh, but like. He would he would listen to my music, look at my scores, and think of things that, uh, like you know, were musical corollaries or musical avenues to explore that like were totally out of my imagination. Sometimes that was, um, you know, sometimes that was one direction. Sometimes it would be like uh, I would you know show him a piece, and I, I would I would think like oh, this piece is really inspired by uh, you know. Um, like uh, Joanna Newsom and uh, maybe like Steve Reich, something uh, like this is what's in my mind and age, whatever. And, uh, and John would like, you know, look at it for a very long time and, uh, you know, like look up and say, you know, do you know Charles Ives fourth symphony? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I would be like, yeah, kind of like, yeah, I've heard it, I think. Uh, and, uh, you know, we'd go and like look at the score for a while and then he would say, you know, I always expect it to be the great piece, and it's not quite. <laughs> so you are heading to um, an island, deserted island, and you have to take only one John Adams piece with you for the rest of your life. What's it going to be? What's your number one? Dharma at Big Sur. Dharma at Big Sur. Why do you love that piece so much? Wh- and why? That's a, <laughs> that's a tough one. I mean, so probably about that age when I met John, like... I would listen to Dharma Big Sur basically every day of my life. And I would do this with my friends. You know, we, we all, it was like a, it was like a religious tome. And the, there's something so magical about that piece that I didn't feel at the time, uh, like, was explicable. <laughs> um, and I remember... I, I told John at one point how much I love that piece, and he incredibly generously gave me a score. And um, I remember thinking, like, before I looked at that score for the first time, I, I, I like, had a pause where I was like, wait, is this going to ruin it? <laughs> like, am I going to not believe that this is magical anymore? Like, if I see how this is actually created? Because it's like, there's something about the sound world, that piece, it's for a six-string electric violin, uh, and the bottom string is super low. It's a very, it's already a, a kind of, like, a... It stands out uh, in that way, but also the the orchestra is really unique. It has like I think it has two bass clarinets, but other than that, there are no woodwinds. And you know, John, this is a, a a deep cut, but it's something that I've always admired about John's music is that he's like, extremely open to transforming the the orchestra um, to the needs of the piece that he's writing. I think that's something that's probably hard for for. Uh, composers who haven't like had the chance to write for orchestra as much as John where they're like, okay, orchestra, like, yeah, 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 I've got two of these and two of these and two of these. John is like extremely, extremely committed to, 
saying like, okay, yeah, I'm writing for orchestra, but like this piece, the sound world does not have high woodwinds. Like that's, that's not part of this piece. Um, and so there, there's something really specific about the sound of that piece. And um, I mean, it's absolutely beautiful, but there's, it's like, it feels like, like I just, it doesn't feel like this is something that's been written. It feels like something that just like came up out of the sea and here it exists and like it can't possibly be uh, um, be captured. So I don't know if that answers that. It's just it's just a beautiful piece. Yeah, I actually <laughs> I also love that piece. And in fact, let's play an excerpt of that right now. quirky, funny, ideally humanizing stories about John Adams? I mean, uh, what I'll say is that um, John is my number one A's fan friend. So he and I are both massive fans of the Oakland A's. And um, we've gone to several A's games together, which is always the best. And um, there is there is something so great about, you know, going to an A's game with, uh, with, with John, who's, you know, this amazing composer and... Uh, <laughs> Um, great guy and you get to the ace game and just hearing him you know just like yell and yell at the, <laughs> at I the love game. that uh, it's just like a great experience every time it's like going to see the Dodgers with like Schoenberg right exactly um, all right can we talk about um, your piece that's going to be premiering at the Ojai Music Festival which is a co-commission between the Ojai Music Festival and the LA Phil uh, Sunt Lacrime, Rerum, these are the tears of things. Yeah, let's see, where to start? I mean, I, so I started writing this piece in like August and September of 2020. And um, for those of you who have kept track of world events, uh, that was a terrible time to, to be a human on planet Earth. And um, they, it was, I mean, particularly in, in California, we were really... We were already in in lockdown because of COVID, and we were also um, in lockdown around that time because of the fires. I mean, we you, we couldn't couldn't go to indoor public places because of COVID, but we also really couldn't go outside because the air wasn't breathable, and the, that sort of intensely uh, apocalyptic experience. Something I hope I never have to live through again. But there is something that question at that moment, and it had been. It had been months since being able to go to a live performance, you know, my favorite thing in the world. And I knew it was going to be a long time uh, on the other end before I would get to. And I was looking at, you know, looking at this blank piece ahead of me and trying to think about what is the music that 
would make sense to create uh, when it can be experienced again? And that was a question that I, you know, I obsessed over and I was thinking about constantly. I certainly, you know, I'm, I'm always thinking about that in some way. That's always like the question is like you're creating a creating piece of art. Like what is the piece of art that you want people to experience when they experience it? That's always the question. But the that connection between present and future uh, was a lot more separate than um, than it usually is. Usually it's like, OK, yeah, this is the world. I have some general sense of the world. Uh, like if I decide what I want, you know, what I want people to experience in this world, that that will generally be the thing that would make sense for them to experience when they get to hear the piece. And I didn't feel like that was necessarily true in August and September of 2020. Uh, like I certainly hoped and it, you know, made sense logically that the world in which they would get to experience this piece would be extremely different from the world in which I was living. And they were, it really made me think about, uh, I mean, one thing I, one thing that came to mind is that there, there, there are a lot of different potential purposes for art, uh, but I was thinking a lot about two paths, one of which is autobiographical. Certainly, art can convey something of your experience of the world to other people. Uh, it's very useful in that way. Um, you know, potentially more so than language, uh, if, if done well. Uh, it's something very powerful. But I, I was also thinking about another path of a kind of aspirational art where, you know, art is offering an experience to another person in, in addition to having the chance to convey something of your own life to someone else. It, it also, if you point it in that direction, has the chance to give people an experience that you want them to have. Uh, maybe that's not the experience that you're having. Maybe it's the experience that you want to have. And, and that's what I was thinking about a lot in that when we finally made it to what is now I mean, September 19th, 2021, uh, to hear this music, like I, I wouldn't want people to be experiencing, I wouldn't want the music to be like, oh yeah, life sucks right now. <laughs> like uh, here's, here's an experience. This is what August 2020 was like, like <laughs> I don't want to hear that. Like, I'm, I definitely don't want to go to a show. Like, we get to go to live shows again. We get to hear music again together. This is the most wonderful thing in the world. I don't want to go to a show and, and hear a piece and it's like, ah, yes, the pandemic was awful. Like, this, that's, that's, that's there's no point. <laughs> I'm not interested in that. So I wanted to create, I mean, it, I say I wanted to, but also, like, you're you're compelled as an artist. The, the music started coming out when it felt right. But, like, I wanted to create something that celebrated the joy of that future world that I had to believe would exist and, and certainly will exist. And so that this piece is ecstatic. It's really, um, it's a it's a kind of barbaric yop. I mean, I remember writing the first notes, uh, really, literally, I wrote the first notes on September 9th, 2020, which was the, the orange day in, uh, in Northern California when the sun didn't come up at all. I woke up that morning, it was completely black. I thought that was strange because usually I wake up really early and it's bright. Like, okay, I guess it's earlier than I thought it was. And I check the time and it's the same time I normally wake up. And I think that's pretty weird. And then hours pass and the sun never comes up. And there's just kind of this like super faint orange glow. And that is the... <laughs> That's the worst thing that you can that you can go through in terms of your uh, your uh, metaphorical uh, experience of the future. Like you, oh, you know, the sun will come up tomorrow. Like if that doesn't happen, then you, you're really screwed. <laughs> so, 
it was it was a really completely apocalyptic day and i remember writing the first note i like looking out the window i could barely see out of it like noon and writing this just like absolutely jubilant music and it's like i wanted to this music to fill up that view <laughs> like okay it's it doesn't the world doesn't exist out there so i need to create it right. and that that's where this piece came from and um so so that's yeah that that's like the that's the emotional force behind the piece i i should also talk a little bit about the title because that was part of my thinking as well um so the title student locker in my room is uh from the aeneid and uh, i'm i i love uh i love ancient literature i have a degree in classics it's something that i always i love anything that offers a kind of perspective on the way that the world exists and uh being able to read and have this feeling of connection with people from thousands of years ago who are living lives that were totally different, but also similar in, in various ways. It's a really wonderful way, I think, of uh, being able to actually experience that kind of perspective on um, what life is and can be. So uh, so this title comes from the Aeneid, and it's this moment in book one. It's, it's, a, it's a pretty famous moment um, where uh, Aeneas, who's just fled Troy at the beginning, um, and you know Troy, he's a Trojan. Uh, he's fled Troy. The, his city is burning. Uh, his his civilization is essentially gone, and he's uh, he's traumatized by that. He's he's leaving Troy uh, with the the remnants of his people, with some sort of uh, divine mandate to go found Rome, uh, which he will one day do, despite the fact that he arrives in Italy and there are already people there. But that hasn't happened yet, and um, he's. He arrives in Carthage, and it's really like this is his first stop uh, after just leaving this war that also has been taking place for ten years. So it's it's just like a huge, uh, uh, huge, hugely terrible experience. And he arrives in Carthage, and he sees this frieze on the outside of Dido's palace that depicts the events of the Trojan War from which he just came. And there's images of his friends dying, and you know of. Um, various events that that he was there to experience that clearly were horrible um and here they are in art and they're preserved in art and he breaks down crying and he says to his friend Anchises, he says sunt lacrimae rerum et mentum mortalia tangunt these are the tears of things and uh mortal uh mortal things touch my touch my heart and um it's the sentiment, uh, it's followed, the next sentence is also great, it's, uh, but release your fear, our story carries some salvation. There's this sense of, like, um, it gets at some of the questions that I was wondering of, like, you know, what what is, what is art? <laughs> what can art be in the face of, like, some massive communal trauma? And... Um, um, and how is, you know, how is it useful for us to experience that coming out of it? And that, that moment, it's a, I think in some ways it's a profoundly optimistic statement. It's like he, he's crying, he's crying for everything. Like he, you know, he sees this, this moment, these moments memorialized like this, um, like, yes, this is life. And you have to like, you imagine like, they don't have like a lot of mirrors probably like the, the self-reflective moments of life in, uh, uh, 1200 BC in Mediterranean, probably fairly, uh, inaccessible. And to, to see like his life transformed into narrative, into story, into art, like you have this sense of, of perspective, uh, and also this sense of like, 
you know, there's something in, there's something in the fact that we can all look at this together. Like we're here together. We, we see this and we're all looking in the same direction and our, our lives have turned to story. Uh, and there's something beautiful about that. Like, okay, that's, that's something that can carry us into the future. So I think that, I think it's a really, really beautiful sentiment. It's also really hard to translate because Ray Room, um, which I translated in the title as things, it, Ray Room, it means like, it means like everything. Like uh, one of the great things, one of the great differences between Latin and Greek is that Greek, uh, they just like came up with a new word for everything that ever happened. So it's like, oh, okay. Like talking to Thomas on a podcast, like, yeah, we definitely know a word for that. So <laughs> uh, whereas Latin is, Latin's the opposite. It's like hey, everything that happened, it's like, how do we fit it into these like 25 words that we already have? Um, and so, so Ray Room, which comes from race, is like, it means like, things it also means like the affairs of life like the everything that happens like an event it, it's like it's like anything in the world like yeah it's a that could be part of ray room so it's it's a really tough word to translate and it gets translated in all sorts of different ways but i actually think that that things encapsulates that um pretty well because it's like it really is these are the tears of of everything of like all the things that could happen of all the things in life like you know just anything like this is the tears for for all of that um and uh, so I, I find that and i think it's also it's not it's not tears just of sadness it's like tears of overwhelming um experience so that that you know resonated with this this moment coming out of the pandemic being able to experience art together again for the first time and that's what uh, gives its name to the piece cool and the piece has a very unique instrumentation uh two micro Tune, microtonally tuned keyboards and two harps also microtonally tuned is that right yep that uh, well no the the harps are the harps are oh, equal temperament the harps are normal the keyboards yep. are, are microtonally tuned um yep. can you talk about this instrumentation and also your history of working with microtonally microtonally tuned keyboards <laughs> yeah sure i mean so um i love i love well there there are a few different answers here i I do, in general, I'm fascinated by the history of tuning, um, and it goes back to what I was saying earlier about perspective also, but, uh, you know, growing up in the United States and born in 1991, and uh, to, you know, I'd certainly to look at the entire world as a whole and to look back throughout history, like, that's it's very, very recent and uh, localized invention, the 12-tone equal temperament that the... Uh, that the pianos that are around us are are telling us about, and there, you know, there are infinite possibilities and notes in between, and certainly infinite different ways that people have tried uh, tuning and choosing notes throughout history. So, it, in general, it's something that's really interesting to me: the idea that we we have this kind of vision of music that is assumed in most cases to be kind of like the far reaches of the musical universe, and yet it's actually I mean, it's very specific and contextual. Um, so that's that's always fascinating. But um, in general. I, I also just uh, there's lots of microtonal music that I love. There's also a there's a long tradition of um, of California microtonal composers that I um, am compelled by, and you know um, certainly like optimistically imagine myself as something in that lineage. Um, but with with this piece and something that has drawn my attention as a composer a lot in the last several years, um, I really want to be able to create music that. Uh, that gives us that provides the things that we love the most about music um and it's like 
you know, there, there are lots of different things to convey throughout art. Uh, absolutely. But it, uh, for, for me, it's hard for me to like create music and not want it to just be like the thing that I love the most in the world at all times. <laughs> that's what I want it to be. And that's what I want it to be for you when you're listening. I want you to hear this music and be like, yes, this is obviously this is what I love about being alive. Like, yeah, that that's it. And what's interesting about that in music, like there, there are, uh, you know, I can, I can kind of name a lot of those things. Like we love, uh, you know, major chords. We love one, four, one, one, five, one. Like these are, these are things that just about everybody who hears them is like, yep, that's, uh, that's the good part. Like this, <laughs> this is what's supposed to happen. And, uh, one of the issues is that, you know, we think about folk music. I grew up steeped in American folk music. Like it's entirely that it's entirely one, four, one, uh, every so often you get like a minor three or a minor six, but like that, that's pretty much it. And, uh, it's because those are the good chords. Like that's, the, that's what sounds best. And one of the issues is that at a certain point you get desensitized to that like you've heard it a lot of times it's like okay yeah yeah <laughs> no one four one yeah yeah no i i know i got it and so one one of the questions for me is trying to figure out ways to help people experience that like intense love for those best perfect things uh as if it's the first time again <laughs> you know with that kind of uh that uh, beautiful naivety where you can you can hear it and it's like ah oh, that's so great and you know generally you wouldn't expect that if you just play one four one on the piano the people are like wow uh, even though the first time they ever heard that they definitely said that so the the question is how to how to create that or my question is how to how to create that feeling and one of the things that I've found to be extremely helpful for doing that is using notes that nobody has ever heard before. <laughs> Um, because you you listen to music, and if you're hearing notes that you have literally never heard before, uh, you're not likely to be like, yeah, yeah, I know what this is. <laughs> um, and so, you know, um, retuning the piano is, like, it immediately puts you in a space where you're listening and you're like, whoa, what's happening? Uh, like, I, I, this is all new to me. And once you're in that space, then if you create something that just dives straight into the most wonderful things about music, then people have the chance to go like, whoa, what is this? Wow, this is really amazing. I love music. Uh, and so that's... Um, that's what's driven me more than anything else to writing microtonal music is that chance to kind of like alienate the experience of uh, our fundamental love for the things that we already love. Awesome. I know I am looking forward to hearing this premiere, hearing Magnolia, and uh, thank you for coming on today to the Ojai cast. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. It's a lot of fun. And I look forward to seeing you uh, uh, on September 19th. <laughs>
We're listening to John Adams's I Still Play, performed by Timo Andres. This piece will be performed on Timo's solo piano concert on Sunday, September 19th at 8 a.m. at the Libby Bowl. You will certainly want to be there because it is a concert that will not want to be missed. If you can't be there in person, please tune in to the live stream broadcast, which I host every year. Joining us now via Zoom is the Chairman Emeritus and longtime president of Nonesuch Records, Bob Hurwitz. Nonesuch Records has a long history with John Adams, releasing over 30 albums featuring his music. Welcome, Bob, to the Ojai cast. Happy to be here. So can we start off by you telling us your relationship with John Adams? Well, um, let's see. This is 2021, right? So I think I met John around 1980. Uh, when I was working at DCM Records, and it was my hope that we would start recording his music. Um, and the first record I was involved with actually was Harmonium that ECM recorded again in the early 80s. Uh, and then when I got over to Nonsuch in 1984, um, there was an opportunity to approach John with the idea of signing I guess you would call it a, an exclusive deal that we would have the rights to the first recordings of all his new pieces. And so we've been working together since then, which sounds something like 35 or 36 years to me. Wow. And what, um, back then, 30 years ago, did you find special about John Adams's voice as a composer? When, when you um, begin to get involved from the record po point of view, there's never something special that is attracting to you. It's a whole package that um, you hear something in that musician that sounds completely original, like nothing you've ever heard before. And you love what it is. It's that simple. And uh, John uh, had both of those qualities about what he was doing. He was, it was music to love and it was, music that didn't sound like anyone in the world but John Adams. Anything else you want to add about John Adams and, and your relationship with him? Um, I, 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 it's, a, it's been a privilege working with John. Um, if we had only made one record with him, that would have also been a privilege. But I think that there is something special when one can work with an artist over many years, whether it be five years or 35 years, and could sustain a relationship where you're able to witness um, an artist over a long period of time that you allow yourself to, on one hand, have the highest of expectations every time you hear a new piece, and the other hand, recognize that you, you have this insight to what a modern composer is and how it relates to what a composer from two centuries might have done. So you hear pieces as they're happening. We don't, if you, for example, care about Beethoven, um, you hear symphonies interspersed with string quartets, interspersed with piano sonatas, interspersed with other chamber music, um, not as one consecutive line, but um, each year bringing different things so you don't really follow that line unless you're a musicologist who's focused only on Beethoven. What happens from piece to piece to piece to piece to piece and to see how things develop. When you're dealing with a living composer who's doing something like that, 
you suddenly see the continuity that happens from year to year in composition and decade to decade. And so you see aspects of how they grow and evolve. And sometimes they take missteps and sometimes the inspiration is, is unbelievable. Um, but what all this does for you is it gives you insight to what older composers were all about. That older composers, whether it be Brahms or Mozart or Beethoven, like modern day composers like John, were human beings who had to face that challenge of a blank page every time they started a new piece. And when they wrote that new piece, of course they were bringing with them all the music they had written up to that moment. And so uh, when, when you grow up learning about classical music, you never think of them in those terms. You think um, Beethoven wrote 32 piano sonatas and you think of that as a singular body of work, not in terms of what those relationships are. So with John, and, and I've been working with him um, and have been aware of every new piece since Harmony Lyra at the time of the creation or even Grand Pianola music. I'm able to see piece by piece. And when you see a piece like Grand Pianola music a few years later followed by Nixon in China, and you see the areas where these pieces are connecting, which leads to what he did when he wrote Fearful Symmetries. And then you see other pieces that look back at earlier parts of what he did or pieces that are always looking forward. You see a whole that, uh, Again, to use that word, it's a very rare privilege to be able to have that experience with any kind of creative artist. And that's, um, in a way, set a kind of standard for what I always hope with any artist that I work with at Nonsuch. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Bob, and thank you for joining us on the Ojai Cast. Thank you, everyone, for listening to our episode two of Ojai Cast. All this talk about John Adams has me so excited about this year's Ojai Music Festival coming up on December 16th through 19th. More information on the composers, artists, and music discussed today can be found at ojaifestival.org. You can follow the Ojai Music Festival on social media at Ojai Festivals, and you can follow me on social media at Thomas Kotcheff. Come back for episode three, where I'll be joined by my co-host of the Ojai Music Festival livestream, Veronica Krausis, and we'll be doing a guide to listening to new music, where we'll talk about how to approach the often unfamiliar music of living composers. See you then.